Thank you very much, uh, Daniel. Thanks very much to the German Historical Institute for hosting us this evening. Thanks to everybody for coming out. Uh, as I usually do in instances like this, I write a paper and then I find out how long I have to speak. <laughs> <laughs> and the two don't necessarily coincide very well. So I have a paper, but I won't read it because I only have 40 to 45 minutes to speak. And it would take me longer than that to read this, but I'm happy to share this paper with anyone who wants to send me an email. Uh, so let me start. Uh, I'll start, first of all, with the title, with a few words of uh, caution, as I usually do. Uh, this is not a talk about Jews and Muslims. It's a talk only about Jews. Uh, there were Muslim slave laborers from North Africa who were present in the Channel Islands during the period of occupation. And you can find lists of those who died uh, under the Nazi jackboot in the islands. And that's part of the history of the Channel Islands and the occupation that probably needs to be written. But it's not my topic tonight. Uh, this is for those of you who don't know where the Channel Islands are, or who forget, or who only see them on the weather map on the BBC uh, morning broadcast. Uh, I'm not going to speak about Alderney tonight because Alderney was uh, depopulated by the Germans soon after the invasion in 1940. The entire civilian population was removed and Alderney became basically a slave labor camp where parts of the Atlantic Wall were uh, constructed and German naval repair facilities were constructed. So I'm only going to talk about Jersey, Guernsey, and Sark, which is where uh, native, in inverted common, uh, Jewish individuals were present. So that's me. Nobody cares. I get to the important stuff. The islands were uh, <coughs> evacuated in June and July of 1940 as Nazi forces swept through the Low Countries and into France. As you could see from the map, uh, France and the Channel Islands are very close together. There was a fear that the German invasion was imminent, and mass movements of the civilian populations of Jersey, Guernsey, and Sark took place. Uh, and people were put on boats, and they went to England to be safe from the German invasion. And the people on those boats included most of the Jewish individuals who were resident in the islands at the time. So the vast majority of Channel Island Jews left before the Germans arrived in June of 1940. June and July of 1940. Uh, but some individuals who were identified as Jews uh, remained behind. And as I will hopefully uh, illustrate in what follows, <clears throat> the fate that they suffered is not the fate that is recorded in the dominant historical narrative of the occupation of the Channel Islands. The dominant historical narrative, I'm going to quote from Michael Jins, who's the leading proponent and the leading local historian, who's obsessed with German bunkers. <laughs> he, has, he has an obsession with concrete and gun sizes. Uh, and other things don't seem to interest him so much. But he has written about the Jews of the Channel Islands, and he has said, uh, despite the threat and numerous restrictions placed upon them, 
nothing much actually happened to British Jews in the Channel Islands. Well, I'm going to demonstrate, I hope tonight, that quite a few things did actually happen to the Jews of the Channel Islands, and that this myth that nothing much happened uh, is in fact not true. I also want to underline, before I move on, that Jin's here uses what has become a classical ploy in the narration of these events by people who don't uh, necessarily uh, share my view of the world. He says nothing much actually happened to British Jews in the Channel Islands. And he makes this distinction, which operates in, again in the historical narratives, between British Jews and non-British Jews in the Channel Islands. Now that's a pernicious distinction for a number of reasons, which I hope uh, will become clearer as we go through. <coughs> Uh, the rest of uh, my presentation this evening, uh, because the Germans didn't care if someone was a British Jew or a non-British Jew, they just cared that someone was or wasn't a Jew. Uh, but, and as we'll see, British Jews suffered a precisely the same fate as non-British Jews, because this was not a distinction that operated. But it's a distinction which operates in these historical narratives and one uh, which we need to be constantly aware of. So let's now cut to the chase. The Germans arrive in Jersey, Guernsey, and Sark. In charge of Jersey and Guernsey are the bailiffs, who are representatives of his Britannic Majesty, and who also operate at this point in time as lieutenant governors as well, because the governors have been removed in the mass evacuation. So the bailiffs fulfill a judicial, an executive, and a legislative function in Jersey and Guernsey. They are the bosses. They're Alexander Coutanche in Jersey and Victor Carey in Guernsey, and the Dame of Sark and her husband, because Sark is a special case. Specialness of Sark. The bailiffs are in charge of the government, and the bailiffs are instructed by London to stay in the islands, to deal with the occupiers, and to protect the local populations as best they can under these circumstances. And that, that is uh, allegedly what they do, although. As I hope to show, that's not necessarily what they did uh, in relation to those uh, members of the civilian population that meant to find those Jews. This is an ad from the Jersey Evening Post. The same ad occurred in the uh, Guernsey Evening Post in the early autumn, late September, early October of 1940, basically two months after the Germans had arrived. And the Germans uh, went to the bailiff and said, here is the order relating to Jews. The first order relating to Jews and the second order relating to Jewish property. Those orders were presented to the royal courts, which are the legislative bodies of Jersey and Guernsey. And with one exception, they were passed without objection. Jurat Lene, Abraham Lene from Guernsey said, we can't do this because this violates 
every principle of British constitutional government. We cannot allow to enter into Guernsey law these types of legal measures which are aimed at segregating, identifying, and punishing people based on what he called religion. But that's it. That's the objection that occurred. It's the only one. There was no objection in Jersey. These decrees went to the royal courts. They were published. They became part of domestic law. And these ads appeared in the local newspapers, essentially saying two things. First one is, everyone who is a Jew needs to present themselves and to be registered as a Jew. And the second thing is, all properties belonging to Jews need to be identified, and if they're commercial enterprises, they need to carry the Jewish undertaking sign. So it was a two-pronged attacking of Jewish property, and aimed at identifying Jewish individuals. In Jersey, Clifford Orange, who was the chief aliens officer, that is the person who was in charge of foreigners and registering foreigners, was given the technical task of registering Jewish individuals, and the Attorney General, Dure Oban, was given the job of dealing with Jewish businesses. In Guernsey, the chief police officer, Schofer, who was also the chief aliens officer, uh, ex officio, was given the job of identifying Jewish individuals, and he did so for Sark as well. Uh, and so the process took place. Individuals were ordered, if they were Jews, to present themselves to the aliens office or to the police by the date identified in the ads, and to provide the information that's asked for uh, in those ads. This is the first person who presented herself, Hedy Versu. Hedy Versu is very interesting. I won't go into the details of her story. But two years later, Hedy Versu was involved in stealing petrol from the Germans to give to uh, the local resistance. Uh, the Germans found out about her, and she went into hiding. And she was given shelter by an island resident. And she lived for about two years hiding from the Germans and she was saved. And she was the last, she was the last living Jewish survivor from the Channel Islands. She died last year. But Hedy Versu is the first person who showed up to register herself. This is her uh, registration file. I'm sorry if you can't uh, necessarily read it because it's, these are old and very fragile documents. But essentially, Hedy Versu isn't a Jew. Because the, Jew, the definition of Jew in the first order is someone, either someone who has practiced the Jewish religion or someone with three or more Jewish grandparents. That's the technical legal definition. Hedy Versu tells a story, and all of these forms you'll see the handwriting will look remarkably similar because Clifford Orange filled all of these in himself. He sat there, he asked them questions in his office, and he filled in the form for everyone, and then asked them to sign it. He gives little uh, annotated comments, uh, helpfully telling people, uh, for example, that the uh, Church of England is Christian. I suppose that was the pass on to the Germans. You might not have known that was the case, or it might have been a comment on the <coughs> 
Hetty Bersu's form says, for, if you can't read it, Miss Hetty Bersu has stated that she is an illegitimate child and that she has never known who her father was, that her mother subsequently married a Romanian Jew, that her mother was originally Protestant but adopted her husband's religion. So she doesn't even know who her grandparents are. So technically speaking, she can't necessarily. By definition, she's not a Jew. And I'll come back to that argument in a minute. This is Marianne Blanquier. Uh, she's an interesting character as well. Uh, she's Dutch by birth. And she was married to uh, Edmund Blanquier, who was a, was a well-known Jersey artist who was collected by the German officers uh, who occupied Jersey. And he, it was quite a market for Blanquier paintings. There, you can see, for example, there's a difference in the writing here because she's the only one who filled in her own form. And there's an argument that's been made that the reason for that is that she was married to a very wealthy and powerful member of the Jersey community. And that Clifford Orange was quite respectful of class differences. Uh, and so uh, she was asked to, to fill this in herself. Uh, as you can see, there's no information insofar as Marianne Blancpied is concerned. She doesn't have any religion. She doesn't give any information about her family. There's nothing on this form, which is the information that island officials and German officials have, to indicate that she has any religious or racial heritage at all. She lived out the occupation without being deported, but she was required on a regular basis to uh, give up her radio set if she owned one to declare her financial interests, all under anti-Jewish uh, German orders, which followed on the first two. This is Nathan Davidson. I'm going to come back to Nathan Davidson a little bit. Uh, he was born in Romania. He puts on his religion that he was a Christian. And he stated he has always belonged to the Christian community. And so far as he is aware, his father did also. Believes that one of his grandparents was a Jew, but knows nothing of the others. So again, there's no evidence here that he practiced a Jewish religion, or that he had three or more Jewish grandparents. But he still presented himself for registration, and Clifford Orange took down the details. He didn't tell him to go away. He didn't say, the definition requires three Jewish grandparents. You're not a Jew. Go away. He just filled in the form. So that's Nathan Davidson. As I said, we will come back to Nathan Davidson. This is John Max Finkelstein. He, again, is an interesting character. Uh, he spent, he's, a, all of the Jews from Jersey, he's the only Jew who went to a concentration camp. He went to Theresienstadt and Buchenwald after he was deported. He survived the war, he came back uh, and became a British citizen in 1947. That's him, he was born in Romania. Uh, he's a retired Egyptian government official. He worked for the Egyptian railway and then retired on his pension uh, too, which caused all sorts of problems, but again, I'm going to that. And he put down again as his religion, Church of England, and added to that is Christian. 
There's again, there's nothing here to indicate that he's Jewish, except that under family status, unlike every other form where it's wife or single or married, which one would expect in the normal government type bureaucratic form, that would be the information you would put. Under family status, Clifford Orange has included for uh, John Max Finkelstein, that he is the son of Solomon and Sarah Finkelstein, uh, which in the island of mind, of course, is Jewish sounding names, uh, which we'll come back to again because that's quite important. That's Hein Goldman. Hein Goldman was born in Birmingham in 1869. He was a beekeeper and a gardener, and Again, I'll come back to him in a minute. As you can see, he lists under religion Judaism. He's the only person of the registered Jews in any of the Channel Islands to indicate that he was religiously Jewish. No one else did this. Hein Goldman, for whatever reason, uh, did. Maybe if he knew what was going to happen to him, he might have changed his mind. This is Margaret Herban. She's equally interesting. She's an Austrian, so therefore she was, a, by this time, German. Uh, and she was married to Hans Herban, who was German. Uh, and Hans Herban's file is very interesting. I won't go into that tonight, but he was, he was a baker, and he was drafted into the German army on the island to bake for them. Uh, and his personnel file contains various entries for his address, and they also contain information about his wife, and they have separate addresses, and the official form from the Vermont says that he cannot rejoin his wife because she is not an area, and that's the reason they have different addresses. So this is uh, Margaret, who again sur survives the war. She stated that her father and her Mater paternal grandparents were Jews, so two Jewish grandparents. Her mother and maternal grandparents were Roman Catholics, as far as she is aware. So again, she also doesn't meet this uh, technical legal test. This is Esther Pauline Lloyd. I have a chapter on her in the book. Uh, she went to Germany and then convinced them to send her back to Jersey <laughs> from the camp. I mean, she's, it's, it's an amazing story. Uh, she's English. She was born in London, and she, the, the narrative from Clifford Aron says, Mrs. Lloyd has stated that she renounced the Jewish faith before her marriage to Mr. Lloyd, who holds the Protestant faith, and her children are being brought up as Protestants. Both Mrs. Lloyd's parents are Jews. So, from that narrative at least, like Heim Goldman, she fits the technical legal definition because she has practiced the Jewish religion, and also she has four Jewish grandparents. So she is a Jew. I don't have a picture of Theresa Marx, unfortunately. Uh, she died in December, so she died two months after this uh, happened. She was, she was old and ill. Uh, you'll see that the forms indicate that she was a Christian. It doesn't say anything about her parents or her grandparents. So again, there's no information on which island authorities could have uh, operated uh, to describe her as being Jewish. 
That's Samuel Selig Simon, who was apparently quite a character. Uh, he was born in Jersey. He was a native. He's the only, uh, at this point in time, he's, he's the only living native Jersey Jew who had been registered under this process. Uh, he says here that his religion is Church of England. And he doesn't know anything about his parents or his grandparents. So again, he doesn't fit the definition. That's Ruby Still. She's the daughter of Teresa Marks. And the only reason she was in Jersey was because her mother was too ill to get on the boat to go to England. She was deported to Germany eventually, along with many other islanders. Uh, she says she's Christian. She's a married woman. She was born in Leeds, English, obviously. Uh, and there's no other information about whether she was Jewish or not Jewish. So that's Jersey. Now we'll turn to Guernsey. This is a letter from uh, Schoolford who's the uh, police chief there. And he identifies five people who are Jews. Four in Guernsey and one on Sark. Elizabeth Dukeman and Elder Bruard married to British citizens and are therefore British citizens themselves. Uh, and throughout the occupation, they insisted that they weren't Jewish but they were included on the list uh, as Jews. And you'll see the two German Jews, Theresa Steiner and August Spitz, who work in the local hospital. Uh, I'll come back to them. And Annie Ronofsky, who lives on Sark, and he's an interesting story as well. But you can see that uh, Guernsey, it's a much smaller place. It had sort of fewer residents, generally speaking. It had fewer residents identified as Jews, and they were identified as Jews by the police. And then this information was handed over to the bailiff, who then handed it over to the Germans. The same mechanism operated in Jersey with Clifford Orange, who reported directly to the bailiff, who reported directly to the field command office of the Germans. And throughout, what they did was they transmitted information. They didn't actively, except for Clifford Orange, who actively sought out other information. I'm going to into that now. They didn't seek out Jews. They asked the Jews to report themselves. They took down the information. They put it in their files, and they sent a copy to the Germans. And then they waited to see what the next thing they would have to do would be. There's Elda. She was deported to Germany as well. There's Elizabeth Dukeman. She was also deported to Germany. There's August Spitz. There's Theresa Steiner. And here's the letter from Sark that there's only one Jew. It's Annie Ronofsky, who was a Czech national, and therefore she became sort of stateless. Uh, because she wasn't in Bohemia or Moravia or any of those other places, or Slovakia. And then she, again, from the very beginning, her, she had a, 
passport for foreigners issued by the German embassy in London. And it was stamped with the letter J, a red letter J, indicating that she was a Jew. And throughout the occupation, she said, this was a mistake. I don't know how this happened. I'm not Jewish. My parents aren't Jewish. My grandparents weren't Jews. I have no idea why this J is on my document. I'm not a Jew. Don't put me on the list. She went on the list. Because that's the way the Channel Islands officials operated. If there was any question, they went on the list. And there actually weren't very many questions because the island officials didn't ask any questions. But that's another story. There's Marianne Grunfeld. I haven't mentioned her because Marianne didn't register as a Jew on Guernsey. She was Polish. She was Jewish. She worked on a farm. She didn't present herself for registration when Sulfur put the announcement in the local paper. And she doesn't appear on any lists of Jews in Guernsey until there's a list of three women, Spitz, Steiner, and Marianne Grunfeld, who are arrested by the Germans, escorted by the British police of Guernsey to the boat, <coughs> sent to France, arrested in France, put on a convoy that left Bordeaux and ended up in Auschwitz. And these three women were killed. And they started their trip to Auschwitz on British territory, being arrested by British policemen. <clears throat> Nobody knows how the Germans found out about Marianne Grunfeld. There are two theories. One theory is she was denounced. But there's no evidence of that. There's certainly no documents that would indicate that she was denounced. And there's no other recorded case in the islands of anybody denouncing someone as a Jew. That's one theory on which people operate. The other theory is that she was identified in a very early document as a foreign national because she was a Pole. And she was identified in another document as an essential agricultural worker because she worked on a farm on Guernsey. And essential agricultural workers were given some special privileges in the early days of the occupation. The speculation of the second theory is some sharp-eyed German saw Marianne Grunfeld Polish and thought we'd better find out a bit more about this person because she could be Jewish. And eventually she was arrested along with the other two women from the hospital and, as I said, put on a boat to France and then put on a train to Poland. Now, we'll come back to Nathan Davidson. We remember Nathan, who was a Christian. He owned a newsagent and a very small grocery shop uh, just outside of St. Helier, just on the outskirts of St. Helier. He didn't know about his grandparents. He, technically speaking, wasn't a Jew. He was registered as a Jew by Clifford Orange, by Vail of Coutanges, by the Attorney General de Rayovan. And the Germans considered him to be Jewish because he appeared on the list compiled by the local officials. Nathan Davidson's shop. There he is. 
I have the honor to acknowledge the receipt of your letter of January the 3rd, 1941, on the subject of Jewish undertakings. The businesses of Mr. Davidson and of Mrs. Goldman, which I'll come to in a minute, must, I am, am informed by the field commandant, be wound up by January the 29th, 1941, and I would be glad to know when these matters are fully arranged accordingly. Signed by the bailiff of Jersey, who swore an oath of allegiance to his Britannic Majesty, to the Attorney General, who swore an oath of allegiance to his Britannic Majesty, both of whom are barristers, both of whom went to law school in this country, exchanging official correspondence, Aryanizing a business. <coughs> but of course, nothing much happened. <coughs> have to remember, all of these, nothing much happened. So, Nathan Davidson's shop was closed. It's as simple as that. He, he wrote a letter back to the Attorney General and said, I put a sign up in my shop. It's closed now. I'm out of business. And that was until we come to the next bit of the story. That's what happened to Nathan Davidson. Here's Hein Goldman, who, of course, said he was a Jew. He identified himself as a Jew. And by the way, he was again born in Birmingham. So he was a British Jew to whom nothing happened, according to the official story. Here's the letter, which I won't read in total, and I'll just summarize the story. What happened was he was married to Ada Goldman, who was not Jewish, he was born in Warwickshire. Ada Goldman claimed that she owned the store, not Heim, that it was her shop, not his shop, that they were separated as to property when they married, that they didn't really live together as man and wife, and he simply lived with her as a tenant. She didn't have anything to do with him. She owned the shop. She had the business license for the shop, and therefore, it was not a Jewish undertaking, because she was not Jewish. She went to see the Attorney General, and he said, there's nothing I can do. So being quite a forthright woman, she went to the Germans. And she said, I'm not a Jew. You can't close my shop. It's not a Jewish undertaking. And the Germans wrote back to the bailiff and said, this woman claims she's not a Jew. And if that's true, and she owns the shop, it's not a Jewish undertaking, and it can't be closed. So go and investigate this, please. And so you have this now wonderful case where the attorney general and the bailiff are investigating not only who owns the shop, but whether the person who owns the shop is Aryan, that's the word that occurs in the correspondence, or Jewish. And this is what they're doing. Of course, nothing much is happening in any of this. And that's the outcome. The outcome is she swears an affidavit with her solicitor, present in the Attorney General's office, and the Attorney General 
passes the information on to the Germans, and the Germans decide this is not a Jewish undertaking, and she keeps her shop. And that's what happens in this particular case. So she's saved, and the shop is saved. But the shop is saved only by, and this is where uh, I bring your attention to the work of my colleague Richard Weisberg from Cardozo Law School in New York City. The problem with all of these arguments that I've been presenting is that they're based on what Richard Weisberg calls the hermeneutic of acceptance. That is, they work as technical legal arguments only if you accept the normative foundation. That is, if you accept that there's a valid legal category called Jew, and another valid legal category called Aryan, and you accept that you could treat people who fall in one category or the other differently from people in the other category, then you can make a technical argument. Who's a Jew? Who's an Aryan? Who, who owns the shop? Who doesn't own the shop? But that's simply accepting the normative validity of the Nazi legal regime. He argues you should make what he calls a jugular argument. That is, we don't accept the normative presuppositions of this legal regime. They're pernicious, they're immoral, they're not British, they're, they violate all of our fundamental principles, and we won't have anything to do with them. We're not going to identify Jews, we're not going to decide who's an Aryan, we're not going to be involved in this. <clears throat> that, of course, didn't happen. So then the next best scenario is the well, can we engage in this hermeneutic of acceptance argument and try and save some people? As you can see from the registration documents in both Jersey and Guernsey, all but two or three people could have been saved from being registered as Jews, but that would have required Clifford Orange to say to them when they showed up, go away. I don't know why you're here, I don't want to know why you're here, but on the information you've given me, you're not a Jew. Go away. Or it would have required Coutanche and Duryodhan, lawyers, to look at the files and say, there's no proof here. These people aren't Jews. Don't send these files to the Germans. That didn't happen. They sent the files to the Germans, and things just got worse. So, how am I doing here? Okay, got a few points. Okay, this. This then is what happened. This is the deportation list from Guernsey, or it's part of the deportation list from Guernsey. Uh, in retaliation for the mass arrest of German citizens in Tehran, apparently, Hitler personally ordered the deportation of British citizens from the Channel Islands. And so a list of British citizens, politically undesirable natives of Jersey and Guernsey, high-ranking Masons, and Jews was compiled or to be put on the list to be deported. Uh, and you can see from this, at the very bottom, it's Henry Dukeman, who is the husband of Elizabeth Dukeman. And it says the final column is the reason for deportation, the basis for the deportation. And Henry Dukeman is deported, and the basis is his wife is a Jew. That's why he's deported. So not only did nothing much happen to British Jews, 
Jews, but nothing much happened to their families. Either. Not only did nothing much happen to British Jews, but nothing much happened to their families either. <laughs> they just got put on lists and then put on ships and sent to Germany. But nothing much happened. So that's what happened to them. This is Clifford Orange. This is, I'll, I'll try quickly to do that. This is uh, the order relating to Jewish property. And this is a letter that was sent to Clifford Orange by uh, a firm of solicitors and barristers on the island uh, because all Jewish property had to be reported under the second order. And these people were administered because all of the individuals here are not on Jersey anymore. They're gone. But their property is still there. So the islander, the island lawyers, again, all of whom are basically trained at Oxford, not to cast any aspersions <laughs> in any universities, they write this letter. We beg to report to you we are acting for Mr. Sidney Bernard Padro, Mr. Jack Morris Israel, and Mrs. Catherine Pauline Hill, May Jacobs, widow of Mr. Albert Walter Albert Russell Hill, all of whom are at present out of the island. As you will observe, Mr. Padro, Mr. Israel, and Mrs. Hill, nay Jacobs, all bear names which we believe are of Jewish origin. We have, however, no knowledge as to whether our clients are of the Jewish faith, and it has been impossible for us to ascertain any accurate information on the matter. So, the lawyers looked at their client list, the properties that they administered, they saw Jewish-sounding names, that's basically what they saw, and they had a choice, like Clifford Orange and like Coutanche, they could have done nothing. They could simply have done nothing, because as they say, we have no evidence. We have no evidence about these people. But, just to be safe, because these names sound like they might be Jewish, tell us what we should do. Well, it should come as no surprise whatsoever that Clifford Orange thought, you better report this because these people are possibly Jews. So please do this. And then we come to the slightly more complicated part of the story because Mrs. Catherine Pauline Hill, named Jacobs, has the same surname as John Jacobs who is a registered Jew. The first letter that comes back to uh, Coutanche from the German Field Command says, look, there's no basis here at all. These names, they might be Jewish, they might not be Jewish. Certainly Jacobs isn't necessarily a Jewish name. Uh, so really, they're probably not Jewish. But we notice on the list of registered Jews that there's a John Jacobs. So if John Jacobs is Jewish, then Mrs. Catherine Pauline Hill, nay Jacobs, might be Jewish. So could you please find out? Is she related to John Jacobs, who's registered as a Jew? Now, there are several questions we can ask here for, one of which is, why did they identify her maiden name at all? Why did they insist on doing it that way when it didn't really have to, since she was not married anymore, she was a widow? Uh, so it didn't really matter. In any event, a long series of interviews take place. Clifford Orange summons John Jacobs to come to the office to explain to him whether he's related to Mrs. Hill, May Jacobs. 
He's too sick. He's dying of tuberculosis. So he sends his wife. And she says, I don't know, because I don't know, because I'm not a Jacobs. But I think my husband thinks she might be related. But also, she has said she doesn't think that she's related to us. So Orange duly notes all of this and sends a report off to the bailiff, who then sends it on to the Germans. We say, well, because there's an indication that she might be related, we better put her on the list and we better Aryanize her property. At which point, the lawyers themselves go to see Mr. Jacobs, who again is dying in his bed. They go to interview him and report back to Orange and to the bailiff, more precisely. Uh, we talked to Mr. Jacobs, and he says they're not related. And not only does he say they're not related, but he also probably isn't a Jew, by the way. Because he says he's a Christian. Which is, of course, something that could have been done two or three years earlier, which may well have avoided all of this schmazzle that occurred as a result of this. But in the end, the Germans decided that there's not enough evidence that she was Jewish. So the people who were willing to listen to the legal arguments about who is and who isn't a Jew were the Germans. And the people who were unwilling to listen to any of this were the British Oxford-trained uh, ruling elite uh, of the islands. And it's a long and complicated story that I won't really bore you with today. But in the correspondence from the lawyers, there's an insistence that uh, her husband, who's dead, Mrs. Hill's husband, she's the widow, he was an Aryan. That's what they said. Her husband was an Aryan, and so we can presume that she was not Jewish, because she was married to an Aryan. Uh, and this happens sort of pretty consistently throughout the whole sad tale. What happens to John Jacobs? John Jacobs dies from tuberculosis. Uh, his family go into his room and they discover he hasn't been taking his medication. And the reason he hasn't been taking his medication is because he was afraid that if he got better, he would be deported. What happened to Nathan Davidson, whose shop was Aryanized? Nathan Davidson went insane and died in the mental hospital in St. Helier. What happened to Victor Emmanuel, another one of the Jews to, which, to whom not much, not much happened? Victor Emmanuel killed himself after he received his deportation notice. Most of the other Jews, as I said, were eventually deported to Germany. John Max Finkelstein was the one who ended up in the sort of the horror system. The others went uh, to the civilian camps where the Channel Islanders uh, remained. And there he is, Lord Kutansch, who for his services to the crown during the occupation was first of all knighted and then some years later ennobled. And this statue appears on the States Building in St. Helier directly below the balcony on which the official liberation of the island of Jersey was announced in 1945. Uh, Victor Carey, who was the bailiff of uh, Guernsey, didn't 
become a lord, but he did receive a knighthood, as did the attorneys general of Jersey and Guernsey for services to the crown uh, during the occupation. So, nothing much happened. A few people died. Hein Goldman, by the way, whose, whose shop was not Aryanized because it belonged to his wife, who was an Aryan, uh, he survived the war. It's reported that he survived the war and wasn't deported because he was a beekeeper. And the Channel Islands, especially after the invasion of France, were cut off from everything. They couldn't get to France for supplies. They couldn't get supplies coming from France. Uh, and as a beekeeper, he produced sugar, which the Germans wanted and needed, so he was saved. Uh, he was also clinically depressed, we would say now, and he killed himself in 1950, apparently, because he couldn't live with the nightmares of the occupation anymore. So, uh, three Jews from Guernsey went to Auschwitz. Some Jews on Jersey killed themselves. Some were arrested and deported. Uh, one went insane and died in a mental hospital. But of course, nothing much happened. And of course, uh, Hein Goldman was English. John Jacobs was English. Samuel Selig Simon, uh, who also died during the occupation, uh, he was English. He was Jersey. He was born in Jersey. So the notion that there was ever a distinction between foreign-born and British Jews uh, is it's not only problematic, but it's completely untrue. So uh, quite contrary to the principles of British justice, but apparently good enough to get a knighthood. Thank you very much, David, about your really challenging lecture about nothing had happened. But I guess a lot of things have happened. Probably there are also a lot of questions out there on the floor, so I open the floor for questions. Yes, the first question over there, please. Thank you very much for this uh, fascinating lecture. Um, it became quite clear that the definition of Jews was quite crucial for the process of their persecution in the Channel Islands. And um, especially the process of identification prior to the registration. And you mentioned that in Guernsey, it was, it was the police uh, who identified the Jews. So what was the basis for this identification? Was it local knowledge? Was it their names? Or were there any records? So on what basis um, did, they, did they identify the Jews? So that they that that they had that they had to um, register afterwards, and my second question is um, about um, um, yeah putting putting the Channel Islands in, in perspective um, of the persecution um, of Jews in Europe. Um, everywhere in Europe, um, the Germans relied um, on local authorities um, to realize their, their policies of annihilation. So in what way is, is the case of the Channel Islands exceptional? Um, how, to what degree were these officials on the Channel Islands um, more eager to fulfill the orders that they received from the Germans, or less eager? How would you put that in perspective? And the last question, um, we didn't hear much about the Germans um, in your paper, so yes. can you tell us a little more about the Germans who were in control 
on the Channel Islands. So was it German Army personnel? Was it, was it SD personnel? And how closely did they control the British authorities on the islands? Okay. The first question on how they went about identifying. In Jersey, it was quite plain that people identified themselves. They presented themselves because, uh, with the exception of Heim Goldman, none of the other 11 who registered was known to be Jewish by people around them. And except, well, maybe Samuel Selig Simon, who was the caretaker for the cemetery, the Jewish section of the cemetery. But uh, they weren't known as members of the congregation. They weren't really practicing Jews. So they weren't known by local people as Jewish, but they presented themselves for probably because they identified themselves as Jewish. On Guernsey, it's slightly different because, at least for the, th for the two women on Guernsey and Annie Ranofsky on Sark, they had all gone through the aliens' immigration process. And they would probably have been identified by Schulfer, the police officer, at that moment in time as being Jewish. Probably, but we don't know because those records uh, are lost. Uh, British, the British, and are they special or not special? And how do they fit into the broader perspective? They, they weren't, uh, some French authors who've written about the Channel Islands because they're so close to France, they think that they're French still. Uh, and some of them want them to be. Uh, have called it Vichy on, the Channel, Vichy on the Channel. It wasn't Vichy because there wasn't, there wasn't initiative by the local officials in the islands. They didn't introduce anti-Jewish laws. They simply confirmed anti-Jewish laws. But in so doing, they were different, for, for example, from the Belgians, who refused to enter German anti-Jewish orders into Belgian law. They, I mean, they collaborated. The Belgians said, we won't allow this because it's against the Belgian constitution to identify people as Jews. And so we can't make it part of Belgian law. But if you force us to engage in this process, then we will do that. But we won't do it as part of Belgian law. The Channel Islands introduced all of these measures, with the exception of the Eighth Order on Jersey, which I didn't talk about, uh, but in Guernsey and Sark they did. They entered them all into local legislation. They're in the statute books. You can go to Jersey and open up the proceedings of the royal court, and there they are in French. So, they, because they didn't engage in this jugular objection that Jurat Lenné wanted in Guernsey, they basically went along with everything. So they're not, as, they're not as proactive as the French. They didn't engage in constitutional objection like the Belgians. They're sort of halfway between those. But in the end, and this is a point that some of my colleagues find difficult to accept, in the end, it didn't really matter in any of those jurisdictions. It didn't matter if the orders came from the French or from the Belgians 
or from the Channel Islanders. The same thing happened. People ended up in Auschwitz. So it's an interesting study in the dynamics of occupation, but the results don't really differ, allow us necessarily to draw differences which are significant. The Germans, yeah, the Germans, they were there. They were there in force, but they were there as Wehrmacht officers. It was an army occupation. The Navy was slightly present, and it was more present on Alderney than it was in the other three islands. Uh, there was no Gestapo presence, and there was no SS presence, although there was an SS presence on Alderney in some of the camps for slave workers. But there weren't SS officers. There were military field police, who basically sort of dealt with the civilian population who interfered with German military operations. But these were, these were just you know, German officers. A lot of them had Vaughn in their name, so they came from a certain class. Uh, a few of them spoke very good English and were, to a greater or lesser extent, quite Anglophile. They, for example, they, did, they collected the Blancpied paintings. They liked to speak in English with Coutanche, even though the official communications were always in German. When they had face-to-face -face meetings, they either spoke English or French. So, and they weren't particularly, with one minor exception of Reffler in Guernsey, as far as I can tell, they weren't particularly Nazified. They were just people doing their job and following orders. But one thing I didn't mention in, in my talk, Guernsey, Jersey, and Sark fell under the broader jurisdiction of Paris. They were considered to be part of France for German military purposes. And so they got their instructions from Paris. And some of the instructions that they got were from the Gestapo in Paris or from the Special Bureau of Jewish Affairs within the German structure. That's where the orders came from, but they were enforced basically by the military. Oh, yes? I would like to come back to the first question. And it still puzzles me uh, that the system is one of self-reporting as Jews, and then they call themselves Christians. <laughs> uh, and um, it seems to me that most of them are ordinary working people, shop owners, and obviously the higher ranks have left. Yes. Um, um, how much pressure might have I mean, was there that they, the local authorities needed to produce to the Germans some uh, <coughs> a list? And um, was the self-reporting really self-reporting? That's, that's an interesting question. And it's, I mean, it's, for example, if you, look at the, if you look at all of the documents from Belgium and where municipalities were given the... <coughs> the jurisdiction to engage in this registration process. They're very careful 
all throughout Belgium, both the Flemish-speaking and the French-speaking parts of that country, to say the following Jews presented themselves for registration, not that we ordered them. It was always proactively the individual Jew who, who was charged with this responsibility. There's no evidence in any of the documents that any of these 12, the original 12 in Jersey, were identified by island officials before the registration process. There's, I suppose, sociologically speaking, one could surmise that they showed up because the government of the island told them to. And that's the way the islands worked. You had the bailiffs, the jurats in the royal court, and you had people like Orange, who particularly for the non-British Jews had quite a bit of power and sway over them uh, and their presence in the island. My suspicion in the absence of evidence, because there just, there isn't any, at least not uncovered so far, maybe it's in the files that the military intelligence people swept up and took away. Uh, my suspicion is they did it because it was an official order from the island government. And you obeyed official orders from the island government because you respected authority. And you did what you were told. And you probably, at this point in time, it's important, I suppose, to remember, give some benefit to the islanders. At this point in time, it's only October 1940. There's you know, Germany's doing pretty well in the war. There's a massive military presence on the island. There's no idea when the war, or if the war will end, if it will end for the good. And it's the early days of the occupation. And the islanders don't know how the Germans are going to deal with them. They do know that they've ordered the arrest of all former British <coughs> officers and that those people have gone off to France, basically. And every day there's a different German order appearing in the newspapers, that you have to do this and you have to do that. So it could well be that they did it partly because the island officials told them to do it, and partly because they feared not complying and being found out. It makes logical sense to me. It makes a certain amount of sociological sense. But unfortunately, there's no evidence of that. The only evidence that we do have is that but for a couple of people, none of these individuals was known as a Jew. So for example, Victor, Victor Emmanuel, who killed himself when he got his deportation order, uh, his death announcement appears in the local paper, and the funeral services take place in the Methodist church. And he was given a Methodist burial. So he, I mean, he was a practicing Christian. Yeah, David, um, ethics. The, the, the lesson for ethics, I suppose, um, maybe on two levels. 
one, you know, we always uh, hear this, you know, banality of evil bureaucracy. The beauty, of course, of your study is that the numbers are, if you like, so low. And the way that you point out that the officials could have basically taken the whole lot off if they wanted. So we, we often have this distinction, you know, to Lebanon's the base against the number. But here, all these guys, you said, they looked them in the face and they did nothing. So that's one point. And the other point is uh, the, the lesson for law, I suppose, because as you point out, these people legally trained who end up being congratulated for their um, legal acumen. Um, the hermeneutics of uh, acceptance is your point that there is nothing therefore in legality that in any way stands against accepting the Nazi laws as law. So two points. Okay. Uh, the ethical question and the face-to-face -face question it's, it is raised in quite stark terms in the island because the numbers are so small, 12, 5, and 1, plus 2 who went into hiding without ever identifying themselves as Jews in total. And they did present themselves to Sulphur and to Clifford Orange for identification. My fundamental feeling for which I have uh, been attacked when I have given expression to this feeling is that there was something which was nothing more or less complicated than a particularly British form of anti-Semitism which was working here. These people were Jews. It didn't matter if they were born in the islands. It didn't matter if they were British. It didn't matter if they were Romanian. They were Jews, and Jews, especially in an insular community, like the communities on the Channel Islands, are just not us. And I'm sure that that was working. They were, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a Jew-baiting, blood libel legend, you know, sort of Julius Stryker, hate-fueled, crazy form. It was just really polite. <laughs> but it was based in a notion that identifying people as Jews for the Nazis wasn't a problem. <coughs> it wasn't a problem. And as I point out in the book, in the years before the invasion, after Hitler came to power and Jews were fleeing Germany in the face of ever-increasing violence and persecution, they applied to come to Jersey, for example. And Clifford Orange and Alexander Kutosh read their files and they read their stories. So they knew, they knew that the Germans were, it wasn't just the newspapers, they had files with pictures of real people. They knew there was persecution going on and they didn't do anything then. They closed the doors basically. And when it came face to face in the office, what do I do with this list? Do I give it to the Germans or do I rip it up and throw it away? The rip it up and throw it away question didn't arise for them. So. Yeah, okay, ethics. They were anti-Semites. They were polite anti-Semites, but they were anti-Semites. The, yeah, I mean, the short answer to the second part of the question is, there is nothing that law can do. The only thing 
that you have to rely on in a situation like this is your sense of right and wrong. You might be able to muster a legal argument to help concretize that sense of right and wrong in a particular case. But the problem with doing that, if it's not at this broad jugular level, is nothing could have saved Nathan Davidson if he said, I'm a Jew. Nothing could have saved Heim Goldman or Esther Lloyd because they were Jews. There's not a legal argument you can present. So that by presenting a legal argument that John Jacobs isn't really a Jew, you're saying, here's my position. If a person really is a Jew, then go ahead. But if they're not a Jew, then you can't. You can't treat them like a Jew. That's potentially sort of more ethically problematic than just you know, someone who just says, I don't like Jews. Treat them however you want. At least you know what you get with somebody like that. But someone who says, John Jacob's probably not a Jew, so don't treat him as if he were. Hein Goldman, yeah, he's a Jew, so can't help. That's very problematic, very problematic. But it might be that that's, you know, it may be in practice that that's the only thing you can do. But I would be more convinced of someone taking that second hermeneutic of acceptance argument, trying to save the people who weren't technically within the definition, if that had come after a failed attempt to make a principled argument. If it came after a, we don't identify Jews because it's immoral, it's unconstitutional, it violates our fundamental principles, and that doesn't work, then you can maybe justify the second hermeneutic of acceptance. I mean, Weisberg says you can never justify it, and I don't necessarily disagree with that at a fundamental level. Okay. Yeah, I've got two questions. One is, is there any evidence, apart from the one or two cases that you've mentioned already, that there are islanders who are Jews who don't identify themselves as Jews and who never go on the record and who make it through the walls? And the second question is, I was really struck by your remark that there's no evidence of denouncements, um, because that's, I think, completely contrary to what it's like in the rest of, of uh, Nazi-occupied Europe. So why is that? Is that simply because people didn't know that there were Jews? There was nothing to denounce? I mean, that doesn't keep people from denouncing. Uh, I mean, in, in, in Germany, people are being denounced as Jews who aren't Jews. Um, so does it maybe have something to say about the attitudes of islanders towards the occupation rather than other, other things. So is it possible that um, there is a difference between uh, the Channel Islands and, and the rest of occupied uh, uh, Europe? Okay. On the first question, there are only the two identified cases of people who, after the war, were identified as Jews, but who didn't present themselves. Uh, the most well, the only case that's of the two that's accepted is the case of Mary Richardson, uh, who was Dutch and who was Jewish 
and who was saved by Albert Bedane, who was a local Islander, Jerseyman. And he is the, he's the only Islander who's recognized by Yad Vashem as righteous among the nations for saving her. So that's the one case that's adequately documented. On the denunciation question, I must say I go back and forth on this. My most common position, the one that convinces me more often when I have these conversations with myself, is that they weren't, they weren't denounced because there weren't any left but for Mary Richardson and Grunfeld in uh, Guernsey. And the ones who did register themselves, basically, for the most part, in most of the cases, nobody knew that they were Jews or that they identified themselves as Jews. Their neighbors didn't know. I mean, they knew about Heim Goldman, and they probably knew about Simon. But for the other ones, they're really, they didn't know because... Again, if you go back to the pre-war days, Jersey was, Jersey and Guernsey both, but Jersey in particular was a very, it's a very small place. <coughs> and the people who were identified as Jews on Jersey were the Peretz, Feldman, and Krzyzewski families who owned the two big men's and women's wear shops on the main street in St. Helier. Everybody knew that they were Jewish, and they were practicing Jews. And they identified themselves as Jewish. But there was never a synagogue. There was never a synagogue. Because they never had enough people for, even for a minion. I mean, they, they had to go to Southampton to do, you know, to celebrate the holidays and to do everything sort of to follow their religious obligations. So the, the people who were known as Jews were gone. And most of the people who stayed weren't really known as Jews. And I don't, know, I don't know why they weren't denounced. I mean, the interesting thing is that there are reports in some sort of diaries of the occupation of uh, Jew Seuss being shown in the local cinema and people cheering and clapping and you know, hissing the evil Jew as they came onto the screen. So there's some evidence that even among the general population, there was at least some manifestation of anti-Semitism unless they were just doing it to have a go at the Germans or they thought this is what the Germans expect us to do, so this is what we'll do, so we'll have other movies. But there's the only reference that I've ever found in any of the documents is, a is an anonymous letter on Guernsey to the police denouncing someone for black market activities. And in the middle of that letter, there's one line that says, who does this person think he is? Does he think he's a Jew? It's not a denunciation of the person as a Jew. It's, you know, the concrete embodiment of sort of your base-level anti-Semitic diatribe. That's it. There's nothing. So 
But I, I don't think that I don't think it would be then fair to say, on the other hand, that Channel Islanders were any more or less anti-Semitic than other Europeans or than their British counterparts. I just think it took a different form. It was just it was more polite. It was more British. Well, and I'll I'll give you the case where you see this. You see this in relation to the eighth order against the Jews, which was the order compelling wearing the yellow star. And there's a very interesting correspondence that goes back and forth between the Germans on Jersey and Guernsey and the Germans in Paris, because the Germans in Paris want this measure implemented right away. And the Germans in Jersey and Guernsey are saying, yeah, but I mean, we need special stars. They've got to say Jew. They can't say Juif. It's got, it has to say, so we need a special order. So put in a special order, and we'll be happy to make sure that this come. And this is the one instance where the bailiff and the attorney general in uh, Jersey go to the Germans and say, don't, don't do this. We, we really don't want you to make us pass this before the royal court. We don't want this registered, and we don't want to have anything to do with this. And the Germans say, uh, okay, don't worry about it for the time being. Now, the reason the Germans said don't worry about it for the time being is because they were having this correspondence with Paris about Jew or Juif, and you know, whether they needed special orders with the manufacturers of these things. And the deportation was already being planned. So there weren't going to be any Jews left to wear the yellow star if the Germans got their way. So it is true that the bailiff and the attorney objected to this. The question is, why did they object to it? The only evidence that we have is their statement that we objected to this because we were afraid of the reaction of the public. So they were afraid that the public, I don't know, were they afraid that the public would be outraged at their fellow islanders having to wear this sign of ignominy? Or were they afraid that now that people knew who the Jews were, they would go and beat them up and there'd be civil disorder? We don't know. We just know that they were afraid of the public reaction. We can assume from the sort of, you know, the narrative and the mythology of the Yellow Star Order and other jurisdictions that this was sometimes thought to be bad. This was, you know, take their property, put signs up in their shops, do all these other things, but don't make them, you know, that's medieval, making them wear the star. That's really, that's a step too far. And if that's the case, then the people in Jersey and Guernsey, in Jersey, at least Guernsey didn't object. They, it would be just the same as a standard European reaction to this. Just don't go that far. It's just, it's just a bit unseemly. Which I think then goes to this very British anti-Semitism. Let's be polite about it. Let's be nice. Is there a question? Um, yes, Jeremy Thomas. You mentioned uh, documents being swept on taken away. Uh, two questions immediately occur to me. The first is something that I remember reading years ago. I cannot put my finger on the source, 
but that it was when the British Army reoccupied uh, Jersey. Some subordinate official in the Jersey administration handed the senior British officer a list of officials whom this, uh, this document alleged um, had engaged in some form or other of collaborative behaviour. Um, this was either torn up on the spot or never saw the light of day again. Second and more substantially, are there any, um, is there evidence of files relating to uh, events in the Channel Islands between 1940 and 1945, which have so far been withheld from scrutiny by the National Archives? I have in mind certain documents, for example, to make a comparison in 1939, 1940, and 1941, which are on a 70-year stop which will not be released until 2015, 2016, or 2017, respectively. Second, uh, finally, being part Belgian myself, and you mentioned Belgium, um, the one comment one would make at any comparison between Belgium and other uh, occupied territories uh, was, of course, that the Belgian monarchy itself remained in place, and that King Leopold remained in residence. And Belgian scholars, whatever their attitudes to Leopold III, do generally concur uh, that this had an effect, particularly on the higher ranking, um, or, uh, uh, the, the higher ranking German officers drawn from the nobility, who were part of the military administration, as distinct from the party administration, which was installed in the Netherlands. Okay. Yes, the story of the list of collaborators uh, is a story which is much abroad, but for which there's almost no evidence and no sort of first-hand evidence. There were investigations into collaboration, and there, were, there are lists of people who were investigated for collaboration. Uh, most of the, well, they fall in, generally speaking, into two categories. They fall into the categories of Italians and Irish free state citizens who were present in the island and who worked for the Germans. But of course, Italy was an ally of Germany and the Irish free state was neutral. So citizens of that country were free to do what they wanted to do, but they were deported afterwards. Those yes, who although, were- Although, of course, uh, the Irish free state as then was remained de jure a member of the Commonwealth until yes. 1949. Yes, but they, um, they weren't subject to, for example, treason laws, which would have been the most readily available legal instrument against them because... And was applied to William Joyce. Yeah, very, very bad legal decision. Very bad That's legal decision. Was. Yes. It was, I mean, I don't mind that they hanged him. I just, I just mind that they didn't really have a solid legal basis for doing so. So those are, those are slightly different questions. The other form of collaboration which took place was the so-called horizontal collaboration of many island women who ended up having children by German soldiers. For the most part, they were just also just shipped off and they weren't punished other than being told you can't come back. Uh, in relation to the files, there are a few army 
military intelligence files which are still closed. But I suspect that there's not going to be very much there because I suspect that anything that was really bad, if there was something that we would consider to be really bad, that's been whatever they did before shredding, burnt, got rid off. It probably, do, it probably doesn't exist. Uh, and yes, it's true, the king was present. There, there are, of course, uh, competing narratives about the actual role of the royal family, particularly in relation to the Jews, and particularly in relation to uh, the distinction which the royal family drew uh, between Belgian Jews and non-Belgian Jews, which, of course, was a, was a much bigger problem in Belgium because the vast majority of Jews on Belgian territory during the occupation were not citizens of the country. And so, I mean, there's a whole other, which, which again, interestingly, despite the historical narrative, didn't actually make any difference in the Channel Islands. They were just all lumped together as Jews. And being a British citizen, or even more so, being from Jersey, didn't make any difference in the way they were treated. Maybe one last question over there, on the girls. I'm interested in the Jews that made to Britain before occupation mm -hmm. and in their property. Mm -hmm. If I look at sort of the German case, uh, the Nazis were interested in money, so they auctioned the property off and uh, the locals were interested in mm -hmm. getting hold of mm -hmm. exactly that property. <coughs> I was just sort of um, trying to get into your world of polite anti-Semitism. Yes. Yes. And the question is, is that a way in? Uh, what happened yeah. with the property? Yeah. And uh, I mean, you, can, you could sort of uh, have it buy it for the people who emigrated yes. and return it, but you could also buy it and keep it mm -hmm. and uh, not give it back. Uh, is, is that a problem? Well, the, I mean, the interesting thing about that particular question is that it's one very clear instance where personal connections in an island community and personal connections grounded in class identification came into play. Because the major process of Aryanization in the islands occurred in Jersey. And it was these three shops, Krzyzewski, Feldman, and Peretz, who intermarried, who, who owned property, shares, and businesses, all of which were declared as Jewish undertakings by their representatives and sort of ferreted out by Clifford Orange, those shareholdings which hadn't been declared by the representatives. And they were put up for public tender. And there were bids which were received for all of these properties from Channel Islanders who wanted to buy these businesses at a bargain basement rate. So the story is not unfamiliar there. But what really happened to the businesses 
was that two employees of the families, together with the bailiff and the attorney general and the solicitors representing the families, conspired to create a false sale of the businesses. A bid was received by the solicitors, a contract for the sale was drafted, and the two former employees allegedly paid over the money to buy the shops. And everything was approved by the bailiff and by the attorney. If you look at the contracts, they, they are nonsense. They don't bear any resemblance to anything that a Channel Island solicitor would have drafted or would draft today. But of course, the Germans didn't know any better. And they had the bailiff and the attorney general and all the solicitors saying this is all fair and square and it's fair value for this. And they had valuations done to show that this was a fair price for these businesses. And as soon as the war was over, the families came back and the employer said, thank God you're all right. Here's the key to the shop. And it was all done to save the businesses. My own interpretation of this is it was done to save the businesses because those three families belong to the same social class as the bailiff, the attorney general, and the solicitor. They were all wealthy Jersey people. And nobody came to save Nathan Davidson's little shop that had 10 pounds worth of goods. Nobody offered to help him. There was no sale of his property to an area. Didn't happen. When it came to these three big businesses, everybody got together and conspired to save the property. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that saving the property from the hands of the Nazis was a bad thing. I think it was a good thing to do. It's one of the few times where the bailiff and the attorney general actually look like they did what was right. But it's also the one time where the question was a question involving wealthy, upper-class members of the Jersey community. And the only other time, the only other time that Coutanche stepped in to try and save property was to try and protect the Masons. So, one, one can draw one's conclusions. But without, again, without trying to diminish the fact that they actually did save these properties. They weren't sold to somebody who was just greedily out to profit from the Aryanization process, and there were islanders who wanted to do that. Uh, you know, they were saved, and the businesses were booming businesses, and Wilfred Krzyzewski, the son of the family, became the first Jew to be a senator on the island of Jersey in the 1950s. His statue was in the airport in Jersey when you land. It's, you know, so they were, you know, they went on to have a good life in Jersey. <coughs> But you can't say the same thing for it. What does it yes. say about the structure of anti-Semitism? Says, it says, I think, that when it comes to protecting property and protecting the interests of one's social class, 
that that form of British consciousness might trump anti-Semitism. Might, might. I'm not sure what the bailiff really said about the Krushevskys or, or the Feldmans behind their backs, but he, I mean, he, he did participate in saving their shops. I would like to come in with the very last question, taking up Andrea's question and Wayne's question. Um, polite anti-Semitism, the main issues, or the main problems, or the main questions you identified with Wayne um, talk about these two, where, four, where firstly, the um, hermeneutic of acceptance, right? And secondly, the question of go away, right? Nobody said go away. And your explanation um, circles around two kind of explanations, British platform anti-Semitism and insular community, right? Um, but we are talking about lawyers, civil servants, educated in Oxford, right? Mm -hmm. So my question is, I mean, what they did went quite far. Mm -hmm. People ended up in Auschwitz, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so my question is therefore, how much is this insulin, how much is this British in terms of anti-Semitism mindset? Well, we, I, I, mindset. yeah. Well, I think the short answer to that question is Britain is an island <laughs> or a series of islands. So there's no, I mean, it's just a slightly bigger island, perhaps, for England, Wales, and Scotland. Uh, and not to forget the Isle of Man, Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. There's still islands. Uh, I think I think that this is especially insular only in the sense that these are really small places. Mm -hmm. And in really small places, these things tend to be somewhat more exaggerated in the sense that everyone knows everyone. And everyone has a much closer sense of identity to the place where they are and to the government structures in particular of where they are. I think it also works the other way. And I didn't sort of mention this, but I probably should have. I think what was also happening among the island officials, these lawyers, was a very crude utilitarian calculation, which was we are responsible for the entire population. We have a massive German military presence. We are losing the war. We don't know how long this is going to go on. So we need to find a way of living with this reality, which will do the greatest good for the greatest number. And so if it comes down to, and this is, I mean, I think this was, it was a calculation they engaged in. It's certainly a post-war justification for what they did or didn't do. This notion that there were only 12 Jews on Jersey and there were 10, 12, 15,000 Jersey men and women. What do you choose? Do you choose the path which is going to protect the 15,000 or do you stand up for the 12 who are you know, basically impoverished people? Nobody knows them. They don't have any positions of power. Uh, and I think 
Throughout the occupation, they engaged in this calculation, and I will go back to the point that this is a calculation which only works because you reject as a matter of principle that there is a matter of principle at stake. If you start engaging in this, you're going to start placing values. You're going to say 12 Jews, value X, 15,000 Jersey men and women, value X plus. And the calculation then becomes inevitable. You, you won't do anything to protect the outgroup. Especially if the perception is, and I think this was also a perception which you know, is informed in Michael Jins's <coughs> comment that you know, nothing happened to the British Jews in this pernicious distinction. These, these 12 people were basically unknown. They weren't lawyers, they didn't own a lot of property, they weren't engaged in commercial, major commercial activities. They were just non-entities, and they were Jews. And the calculation, I think, became very simple. It became, again, taking into account the temporal aspect early, early on in the occupation. We don't know what the Germans are going to do. We don't know what we can expect from them. If we do resist, if we do resist, will they shoot us? We don't know. So am I going to stand up for 12 unknown Jews or am I going to wait and see and use my powers to object when something really important comes up? You know, that is a, that's an interesting question and I think it's a question they ask themselves. But the most interesting part of the question is that, it, again, it relies on this assumption that these 12 Jews don't count for anything, or they count for much less than anything else. And that was, I mean, not, not only do you, do you, I think, see that in what happens, but you see that in the post-war narratives about this. Uh, the Jews were few in number. They were few in number. Well, what difference does it make? If you turn one Jew over to the Germans, that's a bad thing. It's bad. But they didn't have, they did not have at this point in time, a moral compass which allowed them to realize that what they were doing was not the right thing. And that's what it tells you about the British and about British legal training. <laughs> Lawyers apply the rules. They don't think about whether they're right or wrong. <laughs> Let's bring our um, lecture to official part to an end. There's some drinks waiting over there and some bit of food too. Thank you very much, David, for your lecture, chatting lecture, and your